Daniel chapter 11, beginning in verse 21. And in his place shall arise a vile person to whom they will not give the honor of royalty. But he shall come in peaceably and seize the kingdom by intrigue. With the force of a flood they shall be swept away from before him and be broken. And also the prince of the covenant And after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. He shall enter peaceably, even into the richest places of the province. And he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches. And he shall devise his plans against the strongholds but only for a time. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south with a great army, and the king of the south shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. Yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacy shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down, slain, But those kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the time will still be at the appointed time. While returning to his land with great riches, his heart shall be moved against the holy covenant, so he shall do damage and return to his own land. At the appointed time he shall return and go toward the south, but it shall not be like the former or the latter. For ships from Kittim, some of your translations say Cyprus, shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the holy covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the holy covenant and forces shall be mustered by him. And they shall defile the sanctuary fortress. And then they shall take away the daily sacrifices. And place, therefore, the abomination of desolation. Those who do wickedly against the covenant he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong. And carry out great exploits. And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by the sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help, but many shall join with them by intrigue. And some of those of understanding shall fall to refine them, to purify them, and make them white, until the time of the end, because it is still for the appointed time. The prophet Daniel gives Israel a sneak peek into a coming prince and a future holocaust. We're given a glimpse of one of history's most mysterious rulers. His name? Antiochus, number four 
epiphanies. He rules from 175 to 164 BC. Remember, before Christ, you sort of work backwards. You go from 200 to 100. So if you want to understand how the historical past works before the coming of Christ, think of 1000 BC as 10, and then you've got 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. The coming of Christ. We're at number 2. In the coming of Christ, the name Epiphanes means illustrious, glorious manifestation, or the glorious one. The Jews would use a play on words to describe this person from history. Instead of calling him Epiphanes, they would call him Epimanes, which is very, very close, but in it, it means in the Greek language, the dude who's crazy. It literally means the madman. In French, we say, vous êtes dans la lune, the crazy person. In Italian, pazzo. By choosing this name, he claims to be the glorious manifestation of the gods that he worshipped. And so Antiochus IV impressed his image on his coins and he would put on the back of his coins Antiochus, Basilios, which means the Lord Antiochus. And then he would also include the word Theos or Theos, which means God. And then on the back of his coin, he had a picture of Zeus seated holding Nike in his hand. And he identifies as the supreme being. Now, liberal critics of Daniel believe the book was written by some unknown person who identifies himself as Daniel the seer in 164 BC. They come to this conclusion because they can't believe that predictive prophecy could be this telling, chilling, and accurate. I'm convinced that the book of Daniel was written by Daniel, the prophet, in the 5th century BC. Jesus identifies him as such in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15. Now, if you're a person who, who goes with the late date of Daniel rather than what Jesus says about it, then you have a whole different set of problems. In other words, the biggest problem in your life isn't the late dating of Daniel. It's that you don't understand who Jesus really is. And there's a reason why Jesus is convinced that Daniel is writing prophetically. I'm also convinced, again, that this chapter is written by Daniel in pure, predictive, prophetic Fashion. That means he's saying the events before they happen. The events listed in verses 21 through 35, which we just read. I'm going to try and help you make this as simple as I can. It's going to take place over about a 10-year period that will last from 175 B.C. to about 164 B.C. So the passage prophesies the rise to power of a sinister and satanic 
king in verses 21 through 24. The king is going to attempt to invade Egypt in verses 25 through 27. The prophecy details his attempt to recover the lands that were taken by the kings of the south, Ptolemy, which includes the lands that are most important from a biblical perspective. That's Judea, that's Jerusalem, that's Samaria, that's the Galilee. The prophecy includes details of a treaty that's going to be broken in verse 27. The prophecy includes the intense persecution of the Jewish people in verses 28 through 35. What is important about this prophecy is the revelation of Satan's plan to destroy the worship of God's people in God's temple, to sabotage God's plan of salvation, both for the Jews and the Gentiles. The reason why this becomes important for you is because there's a real Satan. And this real Satan not only hates the Jewish people, he hates you. He hates you. It's his goal to try to make you ignorant of God's will for your life. If he can't make you ignorant of God's will, he's going to try to corrupt, distort God's will. He's going to try to make you impatient with God's will. And so we have every reason to believe that Satan is going to reprise this plan in the future of what the Bible calls the time of great tribulation. And so we see, again, his overarching plan, destroy worship, pollute the temple, sabotage God's plan of salvation. And so it makes perfect sense that he would try to destroy worship in your life, pollute your temple. In what sense? The Bible in the New Testament says, you are the temple of God's Holy Spirit. And sometimes we find ourselves in circumstances where we're saying things and doing things and we're using our body as an instrument of disobedience and rebellion. And so there's a reason why the book of Daniel play, pays such close attention to this thing called the abomination which makes desolate. It's talked about in chapter 8. It's talked about in chapter 9. It's talked about in chapter 11 here. And then again in chapter 12. And so in verse 21, we see the king's craftiness. Look what it says. And in his place shall arise a vile person. In our last study, we learned about Seleucus, number 4, Philopater. He was the son of Antiochus III. He ruled from 187 to 176 BC. He was murdered by his tax collector, Heliodorus. This man is now going to be replaced, and in his place 
comes Antiochus number four, Epiphanes, the third son of Antiochus number three, and the younger brother to Seleucus number four, Philopater. So Daniel is going to use a very strong word to describe his overall character. The Holy Spirit profiles this person as vile, which means unclean and wicked. There was a lady who was famous for being nice to everyone. No matter how wicked or weird people would be, she would always find something nice to say about everybody. And her husband got so frustrated, he, he said, I, I believe that you could find something nice to say about Satan. And she said, well, you do have to admire his persistence. There are people who admire what Antiochus number four did in history. But in a way, it's sort of like sympathy for Satan. Antiochus number four was not the immediate heir to the throne, but he's going to acquire the throne through cunning, intrigue, duplicity. The death of Antiochus number three, his father, brought to the throne his brother, Seleucus number four. Seleucus number four has a son by, named Demetrius number one, Soter. He is the rightful heir to the Seleucid throne. Seleucus number four has his brother Antiochus number four released from a Roman prison where he was held captive as a political prisoner because of the overarching defeat of his father at Magnesia. So he believes that he has to have his brother by his side, so he agrees to send his son Demetrius, the crown prince, to replace his brother to make sure the terms of the treaty and the defeat are met. So Antiochus leaves Rome, spends some time in Athens, and then makes his way to, eventually, Antioch, where his brother has been killed by Heliodorus. Antiochus IV will kill Heliodorus in order to avenge his brother. He will then marry the woman who was married to his brother, not because it's weird, but so that he can become the ward and the protector of Demetrius. This gives him the right to rule, if you, if you will, <clears throat> until Demetrius comes of age. And so he is going to assume control even though he's not the rightful heir, just like the text says. And so when it says... He comes in the name of peace, and he seizes power by intrigue. Antiochus Epiphanes number four becomes a type and a shadow of the future man of sin, the Antichrist. In other words, there's an Antichrist that's going to be coming in the future. What do both of these people have in common? Neither of them have the right to rule. Both come in the name of peace. Both seize power by cunning. 
So Antiochus number four believes the Jews in Jerusalem should be finally made into Greeks. That they should make the transition from Judaism and whatever it means to be distinctively Jewish and to adopt the language of Greece, the culture of Greece, the values of Greece, the religion of Greece. He sees the Jewish people and Jerusalem as a threat to a unified, homogenous kingdom. And so, I believe that seize the kingdom by intrigue is really a reference for his plans for Jerusalem, his plans to convert Jerusalem to a Greek city-state. There's been a couple of times in the history of Jerusalem where it changed its name. Some of you are familiar with Petrograd or St. Petersburg, and it was changed to Stalingrad. Stalin names this city after himself, and of course, after Stalin dies, it goes back to being St. Petersburg. Antiochus number four is going to remove the name Jerusalem, and he's going to give Jerusalem his own name and call it Antioch. Now, he believes, and this is important for you to understand, he believes at the beginning of his kingdom that he's a friend of the Jew, that he's a Jew lover, Jew believer, Jew supporter. And the reason why all of this is going to become important is because I believe when Antichrist makes his way on the scene, he isn't going to present himself as a person who hates the Jews. He's going to present himself as a person who loves the Jews. So the Antichrist of the future, like the Antichrist picture of the past, is going to present himself as friend, benefactor of Jerusalem and the Jews. Both Antiochus and the future Antichrist are vile and despicable. And again, historians are split over what causes Antiochus to act out during the course of his reign. But everyone, everyone... Believer and unbeliever, secular historian and religious scholar. What all of them agree is that what Antiochus did were crimes against humanity. Even the atheist who doesn't believe in God believes that the wickedness of Antiochus sort of pushes a new historical envelope. In verse 22, it says, with the force of a flood, they shall be swept away from before him and be broken, and also the prince of the covenant. The armies of Antiochus number four are going to secure the region. They are going to secure and once again take control of the Galilee, of Samaria, of Jerusalem. The city in the past had been controlled by Egypt and the Egyptian successor kings. So the armies of Antiochus, like a flood, will push the remnants of the presence of Ptolemy out of the land. And it says, and also the prince of the covenant. Who is the prince of the covenant? I'm going to suggest to you that here, Daniel means the covenant that God made with the Jewish people. 
God made a covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God made a covenant with Joshua and Moses. God made a covenant with the Jewish people that he was going to be their God and they were going to be his people. But remember, part of the point of the covenant is to bring forth the Messiah. This is where we connect the dots. Why is this so important? Because the Messiah is going to be the person who's going to come in order to satisfy the situation concerning sin. Because guess what? The whole world needs a savior. And so here, the prince of the covenant almost certainly is a reference to the high priest of Jerusalem. In other words, the high priest of Jerusalem is the person who's in charge of the covenant. So in this case, it's a reference to the high priest, Onius, number three, who is removed about 175 BC. So... When Antiochus IV returns, secures power, Onius number three and Antiochus number four are contemporaries. He is the high priest in Jerusalem. He is going to be removed. Onius number three, or Onias number three, is a supporter of Ptolemy and the Ptolemaic kingdoms and the Egyptian control. He's going to eventually be, be succeeded by his brother, whose name is Joshua. But his name is also Yeshua. And in the Greek, his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. His brother's name is Jesus. He changes his name to the Greek name Jason, and he promotes Greek value, Greek language, Greek religion. And so he is going to attempt to integrate Greek culture with the Jewish people. And this is going to create a huge problem because you've got a deeply divided city with those people who want to honor what God has said in the past and those who want to abandon and embrace Greek culture. And so in verse 23, it says, and after the league is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, for he shall come up and become strong with a small number of people. So we've got two different issues here. Number one, we've got the brothers in Jerusalem. Number two, we've got another set of brothers in Egypt. There are brothers who are vying for power with each other in Jerusalem, and there are brothers who are vying with power with each other in Alexandria, in Egypt. Antiochus number four is going to form a league, a covenant, a treaty, if you will, with Ptolemy number six, Philometer, against his rival and brother, Ptolemy number seven, Eurgetes number two. Antiochus attempts to gain power and control over the mouth of Egypt. He is going to secure control, establish garrisons at the border of Egypt and Memphis, and then another garrison just outside of Alexandria. And so we begin with the king's conquest. In verse 24, it says, He shall peaceably, even into the richest places of the province, enter 
even the richest places of the province, and he shall do what his fathers have not done, nor his forefathers. He shall disperse among them the plunder, spoil, and riches, and he shall devise his plans against the strongholds, but only for a time. So what does Antiochus number four do differently from his predecessors? His predecessors attacked cities, looted them, and took the riches for himself. Antiochus will attack cities, take the riches, and then distribute it among the people. He's sort of the Bernie Sanders of the ancient world. <laughs> He's going to take all of your money and then he's going to redistribute the wealth so that there is equality. So instead of spoiling the strongholds to increase his own wealth, he's going to take the wealth and the power and he's going to secure the obedience and the loyalty of the people in his kingdom. But the strategy is only going to last, look what it says in verse 24, for a time. So it would appear that Antiochus IV will gain favor and friendship. He's going to distribute the spoils of war. His motive is to gain control over Egypt. Some scholars believe that this is a reference to Jerusalem itself. And so this leads us to believe that Antiochus goes to Jerusalem and says, Jerusalem, you know what you need? You need a hippodrome. You need Bronco Stadium so that we can have games here and we can introduce Greek competition and so that you can understand that you're a part of this great big Greek culture. He says, oh, and by the way, we're gonna also have a Greek gymnasium. How many of you know what a gymnasium is? Some of you do. In the Greek culture, a gymnasium was a place where you practiced physical fitness. But in the Greek culture, it was way more than that. A gymnasium was like a university. You didn't just go to the Greek gymnasium in order to work out. You went there to go to school. If you were a child, you received Greek education. That means you're going to learn about Socrates, Aristotle, Plato. You're going to learn about Greek language, Greek culture, Greek gods, Greek values, Greek sentiments. And so he establishes a gymnasium and builds it with his own money. It would be like establishing a university system. And then he invites all of the people to a free Greek education. And a lot of the Jewish people thought, wow, Judaism versus Hellenism or Greek culture. And so... In history, Antiochus IV attempts to make Jerusalem a Greek city-state. It was called a polis. Not a Jared polis like our governor. Polis is the Greek word for city. And with that came advantages that not every city had. So Antiochus invites the city to assume his name. He opens the door to the city, and then he invites Jerusalem to experience all of the advantages of being a Greek colony. And then the king's confrontations. Look what it says in verse 25. He shall stir up his power and his courage against the king of the south. That's 
the Ptolemies, with a great army, and the king of the south, the Ptolemies, shall be stirred up to battle with a very great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for they shall devise plans against him. So the Ptolemies, number six, Philometer, 181 to 146, Antiochus is going to launch two attacks against Egypt between the years 170 AD or BC to 168 BC. Egypt has a powerful and well-equipped army because Egypt is by and large the oldest and the wealthiest province of what remained of Alexander's kingdom. Antiochus IV is going to execute a series of plots, but remember what he's done. He has bribed Ptolemy's chief generals, and they double-cross the king of Egypt, and Antiochus proves successful. He proves successful, but he doesn't secure Egypt. There's a kind of awkward truce. In verse 26, it says, yes, those who eat of the portion of his delicacies shall destroy him. His army shall be swept away and many shall fall down slain. Not everyone gets to eat at the king's table, only the most trusted advisors. So the trusted advisors of the Ptolemies are sitting down with the king of Egypt, but they're trying to create a situation that's going to be in the best advantage of Antiochus IV. In verse 27, it says, Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table, but it shall not prosper, for the end will stand at the appointed time. What's happening in the text? Both kings are sitting at the same table. The victor, Antiochus IV. The vanquished, Ptolemy number six, Philometer. Why are they at the same table? They are there under the pretense of peace. The king of the north says, I want peace. The king of the south says, I want peace. They both claim to live in peace. Look what the text says. Both these kings' hearts shall be bent on evil. Do they really want peace? No. They're bent on evil. What does that mean? They're claiming to live in peace, but each of them are trying to secure their own advantage. Both are deceptive. Ptolemy number six Philometer was working to make sure he would be reinstated on the throne of Egypt. Antiochus number four Epiphanes is seeking to control Egypt and all of its vast wealth. And you've got to understand that in the mouth of Egypt, it supplies the grain for almost the whole Mediterranean. Whoever controls Egypt controls the food supply. Imagine that someone came to the United States and they secured Kansas, Nebraska, and Iowa. You might think, who would want Kansas, Nebraska, and Iowa? But why are they important to the United States of America? Food. If Kansas, Nebraska, and Iowa don't exist, you don't exist. People don't get to eat. 
And so they're sitting there trying to secure a treaty. Both have bargained in bad faith. Both have hidden motives. Both are guided by deceit. Neither have any idea that they're fulfilling prophecy. The Egyptian king is in the weaker position. He's faced with the prospect of sharing power with his brother. And so Antiochus returns with an unsettled peace, verse 28, while returning to his land with great riches. Why does he have great riches? Because he is the victor, they're the vanquished, and in order to secure at least a short-term peace treaty, they give him a great deal of money. His heart shall be moved against the holy covenant. What is the holy covenant? It's the deal that God has made with the Jewish people. So he shall do damage and return to his own land. What happens? Antiochus IV leaves the bargaining table with enormous resources. His heart is moved against the Holy Covenant. What happened in the heart of Antiochus at this point and in history and in Jerusalem is going to set the stage for this awful confrontation. History reveals on his way back to Syria, he attacks Jerusalem and the surrounding area. He kills 80,000 Jewish men, women, and children. He takes another 40,000 Jewish people as slaves and prisoners. He plunders the Jewish temple in 169 BC. And, and this is what the text means. His heart shall be moved against the Holy Covenant. His attitude, his sympathy, his support fundamentally, dramatically takes a 180. He completely now despises the Jew. Antiochus, the friend of the Jew, now becomes Antiochus, the hater of Jews and Judaism. This hatred and bitter resolve is somehow related in part to his failed campaign in Egypt, his growing suspicion of Rome. And I'm going to add another thing. A demonic presence. I genuinely believe with all of my heart that Antiochus Epiphanes IV, in some way that I can't explain, literally sells his soul to the devil. And he becomes the personification of all that Satan loves and all that Satan hates. In verse 29, it says, at the appointed time, he shall return and go toward the south. He loots, destroys, and then he will return and go back to Egypt. The appointed time seems to be 168 BC. So look what the text says, at the appointed time, he shall return. Where? I think to the Holy Land and then go toward the south. That's to Egypt. But it shall not be like the former or the latter. In what way will it be different? The joint rulers of Egypt 
are going to once again engage Antiochus, his campaign is going to be less successful than it was earlier. Instead of the decisive victory that he experienced, he experiences some success, but not victory. Why? Verse 30, for the ships from Cyprus, or Katim, shall come against him. Therefore he shall be grieved and return in rage against the Holy Covenant and do damage. So he shall return and show regard for those who forsake the Holy Covenant. Now some of your translations, like I said, say Katim or Cyprus. One of the reasons why the latest war against Egypt was less than successful is because the Romans had secured part of Macedonia. They completely took over Cyprus and the Roman warships were docked in the harbors of Cyprus. The Roman admiral was Gaius Poplius Lanius. His name may mean nothing to you, but this Roman admiral is going to force the withdrawal of Antiochus IV from Egypt. The Roman admiral is going to meet Antiochus at the border of Egypt because the wife of the king of Egypt has written Rome and begged Rome to intervene on her behalf to spare her country. Remember, Antiochus IV, when he was under the age of 10, went to Rome, was spent his childhood in Rome, was educated in Rome, and understood everything that you could possibly understand about Rome. You don't get to go to Harvard in undergraduate school and graduate school and not learn anything about liberal liberalism. You can't go to Rome and spend your life in Rome and not begin to understand the dynamics of Roman speech, Roman culture, Roman language. This general, Gaius Popelius Lanius, approaches Antiochus IV. He has in his hand an edict from the Roman Senate barring Antiochus from entering the land. You have to understand something. The Romans had completely wiped out the northern part of Macedonia. When they sent envoys to Corinth, the people of Corinth killed the envoys. Do you know what the Roman government did? The Roman people? They came in, they killed every man, woman, and child in the city. They literally tore the city to the ground. They took rakes and plows and plowed the land and then salted the land. They did the same in North Africa. In other words, if you decide to go against Rome, it's going to be unbelievably bad for you. Gaius... Lentilius, wait, that's not his name. Gaius Popelius Lanius hands the edict from the Roman Senate to Antiochus IV. He places it in his hand, ordering him to leave. Antiochus, in order to buy time, says, let me meet with my advisors and my friends as we try to figure out how we go forward. The Roman general 
takes his walking stick and he places a circle around Antiochus IV Epiphanes and says, you can leave this circle once you give me your answer. So here's what's going on. He is humiliated. He is the king of one of the largest kingdoms in the ancient world. And he is publicly, totally humiliated by the Roman government. He understands that he's going to have to make a choice at that particular moment. Because if he decides to leave the circle, kill the envoy, he knows what Rome is capable of. Rome will take all of its resources, every man, woman, and child, they will mount a campaign and they will obliterate what's left of the Seleucid Empire. Antiochus decides that he will obey the Roman envoy and the Roman government, and he says, I'll do exactly what you say, and the hatred and the bitter resolve is now going to be focused against Jerusalem and the Jew. That's what happened in history. And so, it says, this humiliation wounds the king. The text predicts grief and rage, quote, so he shall return and show regard for those and forsake the holy covenant. Jerusalem has to submit to Antiochus and become a Greek citadel. He's going to once again plunder the city. He once again kills thousands of people. He once again enslaves thousands more. But this time he does something different. He orders that every copy of the Mosaic law that he can put his hand on be burned. He orders all of the Jewish scriptures burned. And then in verse 31, the king's cruelty and forces shall be mustered by him, for they shall defile the sanctuary fortress, for they shall take away the daily sacrifices and place there the abomination of desolation. This is the text that Jesus makes reference to in the book of Matthew and in the book of Mark. We're not sure if Antiochus IV himself had anything directly to do with the events surrounding the desecration or if the events were done by proxy, but this is what we do know. In this moment in history, Antiochus IV continues to go north. The general in charge of his armies is an individual by the name of Geron. He is sent by Antiochus to dismantle the Jewish religious practices. And in December of 167 BC, he inaugurates a system of eliminating all Jewish practices, all religious practices. In December of 167, he makes the Jewish sacrificial system come to a halt. He outlaws the Sabbath observances and the festival observances. They're all suspended. Worship sites are set up in all of the places around Jerusalem. So they're going to set up worship sites to the north. They're going to set up worship sites to the south. Circumcision is strictly forbidden. If you continue to circumcise your children, you will be put to death. And then some of the strangest and most bitter and most difficult things that you can imagine begin to take place. They are so gross, I can't even begin to tell you what they are. The temple is consecrated to Zeus. 
and then it's going to incorporate all the rites and rituals that accompany normal Greek worship practices, which includes polytheism and sacred temple prostitution. So what does it mean that the temple is consecrated to Zeus? Now you have to understand something. Here's the Jewish temple. The Jewish temple can only be entered into once a year, only on the day of atonement, and then only by the high priest. The general says, guess what? All of that's over with. I'm going into the temple. He goes into the temple. He, he removes the altar. Now remember what's happening here. They're wondering if, if Jerusalem is, if these Jews are really religious and if their God is a real God, they walk into this holy of holies and all that's in there is darkness. There's nothing in there. It's empty. And so they take an altar. They erect a statue to Zeus Olympius. Literally, it would seem that the Syrian citizens and the Syrian general and then the Greek sympathizers place a statue in the Holy of Holies. Antiochus IV honored a deity called Baal, Shamim, which in their language meant Lord of heaven. They erect the statue, they put the altar, they take a pig and they slaughter the pig in the holy of holies. And I'm going to suggest to you that they did it repeatedly, over and over again. This desecration of the temple is going to serve as a prototype of all future desecration. So this altar of Zeus, the presence of the statue, the slaughter of the pig creates what Daniel calls the abomination which makes desolate. In what sense? You take the Jews' holiest place and holiest personage and then make it unable to exercise worship for the Jewish people. And so, it becomes a type and a picture of the desolation talked about in Matthew 24, 15, and in Mark. And when we get to chapter 12, we're going to talk a little bit more about it. The future Antichrist, the man of sin, the lawless one in 2 Thessalonians, he's going to set up a future image. But I think it's going to be an image of himself in a future Jewish temple. This will, in effect, make it impossible for Jewish people to worship. Antiochus enthrones himself as the king of the Jews, the king on the earth. The future Antichrist will enthrone himself as the king of the Jews, the king of the earth. This act will utterly desecrate the future temple and make it desolate and cause the future sacrifices to cease. So in this intense program of Hellenization, some of it was embraced by the Jews. Some of them stubbornly resisted it. In the book of Maccabees, it says, Then the king, that's Antiochus IV, wrote to his whole kingdom that they should all become one people. 
and everyone should give up his particular practices. And the king sent word to Judah to follow the practices foreign to the country and to put a stop to all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices and drink offerings of the sanctuary to break the Sabbath, profane the feast, pollute the sanctuary and its sanctity. And anyone who did not obey the king should die. It goes on and it says, Eleazar was glad to undergo torture rather than eat pork. In another instance, a mother and her seven sons suffered the most cruel tortures rather than transgress the law of our forefathers. And finally, they were fried in a great pan one at a time. They created this iron skillet and literally would march the people into the skillet and kill them. Again, Jesus mentions this in Matthew 24, 15 and Mark 13, 14. He says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, it says, let the reader understand. It seems to be that when you see the abomination which makes desolate standing, it's a reference to some sort of idolatrous statue that is erected and then called upon. And the word abomination is a potent word. It means that which is disgusting, that which is filthy, that which is forbidden, that which is blasphemous, but it almost invariably referred to idolatry. And so it would appear that there is this fulfillment taking place at this point in history. There's a future fulfillment that's going to take place in part when Titus and Vespasian destroy the rebuilt temple in 70, it's not rebuilt, it's really part of the second temple, which is going to be ultimately destroyed. And there, there in Jerusalem on a 15 acre circumstance is this plot of ground, which all of history seems to gravitate towards. And it would appear that there's one more fulfillment left in the future. In verse 32, it says, those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. That means the Hellenistic supporters, the Jews who say, I am on the side of Greece, Greek culture, Greek language, Greek belief. He's going to corrupt them with flattery, but the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. This seems to be a reference to the Maccabean brothers, the father Matthias and his five sons. And so again, remember, the Jewish population falls into broad, two broad categories. Those who support the edict of Antiochus Epiphanes, those who resist the edict, those who see the advantage of adopting Greek language, Greek culture, Greek worldview. Menelaus, the high priest, had bought his position with gold and silver. And he exists because Antiochus has made him the high priest at this point. So, then you contrast that with the people who resisted the process. Many men and women paid with flesh and blood. They were spearheaded by, what, by the family of the Hasmoneans 
Uh, Matthias was a country priest. He had five sons. I'm just going to tell you very quickly. John, Simon, Judas, Eleazar, and Jonathan. What's interesting to me, what you should remember, is that John and Judas and Simon are going to be such amazing and popular figures that moms and dads are going to name their children after them for generations to come, including the followers of Jesus, three of whom are named John, Simon, and Judas, after the sons of the Maccabees. So the family basically are asked to enforce the edict on the outside of Jerusalem. An envoy comes out and says, Judaism is suspended. You now must offer um, uh, tribute to to, uh, the Greek gods. They basically killed the envoy. The five brothers fled into the hills. They formed an army. They created a blockade into all of the uh, highways that would lead to Jerusalem. They created an effective blockade. And the blockade was so effective that they beat back the Antiochian armies, wound up repurifying the temple December 25th, 164, in what you know as the Feast of Hanukkah. Now the reason why I think that they were able to be so successful is because Antiochus IV was fighting an intense war on the eastern border with the Parthians and couldn't commit the necessary resources in order to defeat the Jewish people. The chapter in Daniel doesn't talk about the death of Antiochus, but he will die. Remember, he's only in his 40s at this point, but he'll get what the ancients called consumption. He will literally be eaten from the inside out and die. In verse 33, it says, And those of the people who understand shall instruct many, yet for many days they shall fall by sword and flame, by captivity and plundering. Daniel is basically saying, guess what? If you resist, there's going to be pain. There's going to be persecution. Some suggest that this insight is given in Hebrews 11.36, where it talks about those tortured. Others suffered mocking and flogging, chains and prison. Some were stoned, some were sawn in two, some were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in the deserts and the mountains, the dens, the caves of the earth. What's the point? Is it possible that you do exactly what's right? You do exactly what God wants you to do. You honor him, you love him, you obey him. And things go horrible, terribly wrong in your life. You mean you can suffer for doing what's right? The answer is yes. Now when they fall, they shall be aided with a little help. I think that's the Maccabean brothers. But many shall join with them by intrigue. That means cunning and... and, and um, th- in other words, you, remember you still have these two groups of people. Those who resist the Greeks and those who support the Greeks. And so there's still going to be intrigue and difficulty even after the Maccabeans return to Jerusalem, cleanse the altar, remove the profane objects, and restore the Jewish temples. And it says, and some of those 
of understanding shall fall to refine them, purify them, and make them white until the time of the end because it's still for the appointed time. So again, in broad categories, verse 32, those who do wickedly against the covenant and some of those who have understanding, the wise will be made to stumble. So Daniel anticipates a time of trial and persecution for those who decide to do what's right for those who decide to honor God and glorify God, they're going to be martyrs. And they're going to choose to be martyrs rather than embrace Hellenization or Greek culture, Greek language, Greek ideas. Different scholars interpret the time of the end in various ways. Some say that this is a reference to the end of the persecution of Antiochus. Some see it as yet an even further persecution that will take place during the time of the tribulation. Whatever else it means, the second temple is going to be destroyed by the Romans, the Jews are going to be scattered, and in the next passage, Daniel is going to invite us to see further than we've ever seen before. Not into the past, but into another future a future some of you just may live to see. But that's next week. Let's pray. Lord, Lord, I know this has been rough going. But I know that for many people, sometimes they find themselves in a position where they've desecrated their own temple. They've wandered from God. They've distanced themselves from God and from Jesus. They find themselves in a lifestyle of rebellion and disobedience, and they know that if ever there was a time to cleanse their polluted heart, it's now. And just like the Maccabean brothers would rededicate the temple, Lord, I wonder if there are people who might want to rededicate their heart. They find themselves in a difficult place because they've not honored God and they certainly haven't followed Jesus but they know that something's wrong something's terribly wrong in their life and in their heart they need to turn from their sin and turn to the Savior and Lord we thank you and we praise you the Bible says that if we confess our sin you're faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness that Lord we don't have to continue down the road of rebellion and disobedience. We know that Satan is working overtime to try and get us to move away from God's plan and God's will. And Lord, I just pray right now for that person whose heart is empty and broken, marred by skin and scarred by rebellion and disobedience. Lord, I pray that even now they might pray a simple prayer, Lord, Cleanse my heart. Make me new. Restore me to friendship and fellowship with you. Lord, I'm so sorry for my sin and my wickedness and my rebellion and my disobedience. Lord, I want to turn from my sin and I want to turn to the Savior. And I want Jesus to be the Lord of my heart and my life. And so, Lord, I confess my sin and renew my friendship and my relationship with you. Lord, I love you and want to serve you and I want to walk into the future that you have for me, not the future that Satan has for me. In Jesus' name, amen.